You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the fields. On this episode, we'll be talking about sexual harassment in archaeology. Joining me for this discussion are Emily Long, Kristen Barnett, and uh, Kirsten Lopez. Ladies, thank you so much for being here. It's always great to have these conversations. Happy to be here. As always. Perfect. Um, so, Kristen, this is actually your first time on the show, so if you wouldn't mind giving us just a quick introduction of who you are and what your interests are before we jump into today's topic, that would be great. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm My name is Kristen Barnett. I'm an archaeology professor at Bates College um, in the state of Maine. And I focus, I'm a native scholar as well as a woman scholar, and my focus is really on um, an indigenous feminist Ooh. approach to archaeology. That sounds fascinating. I see another episode in the making. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, that light bulb's gone off. <laughs> Fabulous. Um, so today's episode is um, not on indigenous feminist perspectives. Um, it is on sexual harassment in the fields, which, as we all know, is a problem. As some of our longtime listeners will remember, we did an episode about a year ago on sexual harassment in the field. Since then, there's been another SAA meeting with a panel on sexual harassment. There have been some other developments. So we're just going to talk about what's changed, what's stayed the same, um, things you can do going forward, etc. So to set the stage, um, Kristen, you were at the, the first SAA panel on sexual harassment. Do you just want to give a quick synopsis of how that went? I was really excited to be on the panel um, just based on personal experience, um, working in the field, working in the classrooms, being at, um, you know, at a college out west that had some deep and sincere issues with sexual harassment and discrimination. Um, and I got a chance to sit, you know, on a panel of these fabulous women scholars. You know, I think Meg Conkey was sitting next to me, which was one of those like, wah, sort of <laughs> moment. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whoever sees themselves sitting next to Meg, unless it's like on the, a bus or something, I don't know, an airport shuttle at the SAAs. Um, anyhow, it was... It was exciting to be there and to start the conversations. We had a packed room. Um, some of the challenges that came out of it were, although we had a packed room, we were speaking to ourselves. Um, but even in speaking to ourselves, there's a lot of disagreement that comes up around this. I think one of the big issues um, and the strengths of that first year was that we raised a lot of awareness um, as far as how prevalent this really is and you know, and people of, you know, of various gender identities, um, you know, experiencing these same patterns over and over again, whether they're students, whether they're faculty members, or whether they're working in um, consulting. Or, it's a problem that's so deeply entrenched um, in the field. I didn't feel like we really worked beyond a level of awareness that year. The SAA is not a government body. And that was, you know, that was made very clear. And so I think the introduction to this was what can the SAA do? And when it comes down to it, because SAA chooses to not be a governing body, the SAA can really do nothing, you know, other than perform a platform for discussion. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, now, I know the, the second year, and I believe I was um, the only one who was there last year, mm -hmm. the panel was very, very different. Um, the room was between a third and a half full. Um, and unfortunately it was scheduled during the dinner hour and there were 30 some odd other panels going on at the same time. Um, and I think that it was, or I, I, and I know some other people that I talked to read it as a very clear statement by the SCA on how important they think this topic is. Um, so that was really, really disappointing. There was some really, really interesting conversation it did happen at that meeting. There was some more awareness. There were um, several, you know, gentlemen in the room who were hearing and listening again. It was a room that was primarily filled with women, but there were men there. 
as well. Um, and the kind of Christian, what you're talking about at the end, the SEA not being a governing body was something that was really brought to the fore by, by one of the women on the panel. Um, you know, that it's a problem and we know it's a problem. We don't necessarily want to be made responsible for it was kind of the, the impression that I got. There was some discussion about things that could be done to, to make it better, whether, uh, you know, the RPA has a list of people who have complaints that's public, um, you know, or whether you could strip someone of their RPA license if they had enough uh, complaints and issues and that sort of thing. Um, but it does seem like it was a very different session from the year before. So in, in addition to having a second panel um, at the SAAs, and I know, Kristen, I believe you're, um, you've submitted an abstract that's been accepted to have a, a third panel to talk about sexual harassment at the SAAs. I, I think it's great that this is an ongoing conversation. Yeah, I think one of the sad things about that is that the people that have been leading this are so burned out um, and frustrated. Mm -hmm by, you know, by the lack of attention or by the lack of progress, I think, that's being made within the SAA that, you know, I think that's an unfortunate part of taking on these discussions is when you realize that the same people they just mm -hmm. get burned out. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's an exhausting topic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a hard thing to face every day. Um, you know, and, and certainly as the recent Me Too social media campaign uh, and the Harvey Weinstein's uh, allegations and, and firing from his own company proven this is a widespread issue, not only in archaeology, but in response to a lot of the Me Too posts, you know, there have been other posts coming around talking about how emotionally exhausting it is for survivors to see that this has happened to so many other people and to, to have to mm -hmm. deal with that constantly. Um, and that's just like social media. And I can't imagine being one of the people who's kind of really trying to bring attention and shed light on the issue and being seen as someone in the know and therefore having people come and talk to you and ask you questions and hitting brick walls. I mean, mm -hmm. it just sounds exhausting. But uh, were there any, would you say, good outcomes beyond just awareness from these panels? Wasn't there um, like a new statement by the SAAs or like a change in the ethics rules? Something along those lines? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was. I'm going to look it up right now because I remember being really excited that the SAA was actually going to take this on um, and make a new statement. And then I read the statement. Yeah. Yeah. And and it felt like maybe, you know, the original intention was to take it on, but eventually by the time the statement came out, um, it was inadequate. It felt inadequate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And w they had a short comment period where people could read it and, and let the SEA know what they thought about it. And the only options, um, if I'm remembering correctly, and I believe we did talk about this in one of our previous episodes, the only options were... Yes, we should adopt this. Or, or no. no, we should not. There was there was no yes, we should adopt this, but it needs to be better. Yeah. Or I would like to make comments for modifications. There was no really conversation or way to kind of you know, go back and forth. And I think some of that, I mean, that in it of itself was frustrating. Uh, not to have like basically a public comment period versus yes and no. Um, and I think some of it may have to do with the process that the SAA has for adopting ethics code rules, um, which I hate calling them rules because they're not, they're guidelines. Um, and that's... Mm -hmm. And actually they're ethical ceilings. Yes. They're not even baselines. And that was one of the issues that I brought up the first year that we had this panel was that these aren't even, you know, these aren't even things that we can build upon. These are, con these ethics, you know, all of these, that's all nine of the ethical principles are considered ceilings, which doesn't say a lot. No. Um, it's pretty low bar. Archaeology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Incredibly <laughs> low bar. <laughs> well, and some of this comes into the whole 
hesitancy, to say the least, of SA taking on a management role. Um, and I do have to disclose, I am a, um, not that it's, you know, I'm not super involved, but I am an interest group um, co-chair for the essays. Um, but as far as making change, um, the SA has little power due to their desire to stay kind of as a, a non-governing entity. Um, and that's where mm -hmm. our PA had stepped in a number of years ago to try and become that governing body. But it's been very asymmetrical in its sort of ad adaptation and is very, very regional in its adaptation in, as, to far, as so far as to how many people actually join, whether it actually means anything to the other archaeologists or to contractors, any of that. Um, and the problem with it is because you, so unlike other professions, archeology span does not have to have a license, like as archeologists versus like lawyers, nurses, even real estate agents. Um, there are a lot of professions out there that have a sort of licensure. And I know there's a lot of problems with approaching trying to implement something like that because it's so non-standardized and it's an academic field sort of at its heart, um, which is where you get into problems of you have technicians that move from, you know, all the different um, CRM firms. You have academics um, and postdoc, you know, including postdocs that will move from institution to institution. There's very little opportunity for accountability is what it seems like. And that's where at least I know that I find frustration um, in both sexual assault and harassment, you know, definitely the big ones, but also things like, you know, people who do a lot of, say, corner cutting in their work um, or are ethically very low bar for working with indigenous communities or any of that. So that's where I think my own small soapbox of we need some sort of accountability within our field. This is one of the biggest arms I think that can really help, you know, argue for something to be able to hold each other accountable for. Cause otherwise so far there isn't anything that can do that. Mm -hmm. Except we have federal yeah. law and the, you know, CRM, the way that that works, right, is with their federal money, federal permitting or federal dollars. And with that comes, right, federal laws yeah. um, for protecting civil rights. But and those laws are not necessarily right, followed. The of, you know, no, the level of accountability, right? So the, I think that the, you know, the laws and those guidelines are there, the lack of accountability within you know our discipline or just really within our, the world we live in yeah um is astonishing mm -hmm. when one thing that was mentioned at the, the panel last year by one of the individuals was that there is some concern over if an organization steps up and says we want to be the body that is held accountable for sexual harassment and that we will you know, listen to all of the claims and decide whether they have merit and keep them recorded somewhere that if down the road, it comes out that someone had filed a claim against a person and that accountable body hadn't done anything or had made a decision that, um, you know, it wasn't serious enough to merit severe repressions or hadn't let other people know. And it happened again that they could be sued. And in America, in our land of we love suing people, um, I think there was some concern. And I think it's probably uh, valid in some ways. But the SAA particularly has a pot of money that is not particularly large and litigating is very expensive. And if they want to do things like have funds to invite uh, minority and underrepresented scholars to come to the meetings they kind of have to protect those funds. Yeah. Um, that's an, that's a whole nother podcast. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 
But it's worth mentioning that that was one of the arguments that was stated during the, the meeting last year. I could, yeah. So, you know, whatever, whatever you make of that. Mm-hmm. The hard thing, too, and I don't know how necessarily this would work, is whether or not they wish to be the governing body, whether or not um, Society for American Archaeology or the Register for Professional Archaeologists or any of them, whether or not they want to be a governing body, I don't think it could hurt to at least just have a statement that says, you know, sexual harassment will not be tolerated. I mean, it doesn't necessarily matter that if they can't litigate, but at least it puts out that it's unacceptable. Yeah, like the message. And I mean, I think they kind of tried to do that in the statements and the ethics and guidelines, but it was kind of weak as well. And I I mean, the last last sentence says, you know, SAA members will abide by these laws and ensure that the work in educational settings in which they have responsible roles as supervisors are conducted so as to avoid violations of these laws to act, to act and maintain safe um, in respectful work and learning environments. Um, the SAAs is not a safe place, right? These meetings themselves, there's numerous um, accounts of sexual harassment um, and assaults that take place just during our annual meetings. And aside from putting this out and saying that we're, you know, we're going to abide by this, when we register, we don't, we don't have to review these, right? To go to an annual meeting yeah. or to, you know, to provide membership, you know, we're not, we're not required to look at these. Mm -hmm. We're not required to agree that we're going to review them and agree to them. You know, in fact, you have to weed through a website, you know, to actually find them. So I wonder if it could be possible to do something along the lines, like a terms and agreement type thing that you have to do when you just download an app on your phone. Could you yeah. do something similar for membership? And even though it's kind, it'd be kind of like a governing body, kind of not. That's just like, oh, yeah, for me to come to this meeting, I'll totally sign this thing that says I'll adhere to the ethics. And so that at least there's something that said, well, you did agree. So, yeah, at least I can give somebody the route for suing another person or at least go towards litigation should something happen, even just at the meeting itself whether or not it can be a governing body towards all cultural resource management firms, at least it could potentially make the meeting itself a more uh, safe location, a safe, uh, safe situation for everybody who goes. Yeah. And it, it would be a, a very small and simple thing to do that would have an impact and make a statement about where the SAA stands in terms of the safety of their members. Mm-hmm. Right. Has anybody ever submitted an article to American Antiquity? You have to go through this long, long process, right? Nowhere in there do you need to confirm, right, as a researcher and often as a PI, right, or professor that you're providing a safe work environment for the people that participated in this. Hmm. And, I mean, it's, there's... I think that these, you know, the meetings at the annual meetings are fantastic for raising awareness, but it goes beyond raising. I think we need to move beyond raising awareness of letting people know that this happens. Yeah. Because at this point, right? it's not surprising. Nobody should be shocked it's or surprised that this occurs. The only shock is that yeah. we're still having the same conversations yeah. and not really the momentum to address these issues. Exactly. Definitely. Now, I know... The SAA um, in the field of archaeology has had issues. Um, paleontology has also had some issues. I actually think that there are, are some slight indications that things might be getting better, hopefully. Um, but we're going to take our first break now, and when we come back, we're going to discuss some of the specific cases that have come up um, or have had developments in the last year. Mm-hmm. 
Hey, podcast fans, check out the ARC 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365. That's A-R-C-H 365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long, and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365 today. Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On tonight's episode, we have been discussing sexual harassment and assault in the field of archaeology. In the last segment, we discussed some of the meetings um, and the panels that have been happening at SAA meetings, statements that have been made by the SAA. Um, and moving into this 20-minute section, we're going to start discussing some particular examples of um, sexual harassment that have been reported on that we know of um, and why they make us um, hopeful or despair for the future. Um <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Emily, I know that you were dying to talk about the National Park Service. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just dying to. Um, so one thing to keep in mind, and I've, I've been a federal employee. I, I'm still a federal employee. So the thing to keep in mind with a lot of the laws that are in place to, um, to report harassment, it's more to protect the managers than it is to protect um, the workers, and so it can be incredibly hard to have anything be done when uh, you are the victim of harassment, and particularly if it's your manager that is doing so. And last year, just to put into context, if you haven't listened to our first episode about harassment, which you should, um, last year there were a number of cases being brought to the Park Service, and then the Park Service itself was put um, under investigation by the House Committee of investigation because of the number of uh, cases for sexual harassment, whistleblowing, retaliation, general har- general harassment. And um, the Grand Canyon had a number of uh, assaults, um, sexual harassment issues, um, things at Yosemite, Yellowstone, Cape Canaveral, and so on. And it, it showed that the superintendents were not doing anything. And then as far as up as the chain all the way to Washington were doing absolutely nothing. And it turned out that mostly the victims were being fired or forced out of their jobs and anything being done to those who were perpetrating the assaults or harassment in general. Um, so there was this whole big thing like, oh, we're going to stop this. We're going to make sure it never happens again. Well, guess what? It's, it's still, still happening. happening. <laughs> um so there are still major problems. Uh, some of the victims have received restitution, but uh, with the uh, Interior Sec- Secretary, Ryan Zinke, he pledged a zero tolerance for sexual misconduct. But guess what? A superintendent who was found to have been sexually um, harassing, so groping, touching, um, verbally harassing women at a park in Florida was given a new job and a raise. And even though when uh, the media inquired about this situation and tried to figure out, well, hey, why was this guy who has been investigated allowed to have a new job? The National Park Service actually gave the staff uh, required things to say to the uh, to the media, and they were instructed to praise the superintendent should the media inquire. This uh, superintendent was no longer supervising employees, but he was allowed to keep his salary. He was allowed to have his job. Um, other uh, people have been uh, forced to retire, but that means they still get to keep their benefits. Um, just the general harassment um, outside of sexual harassment. There are those who were whistleblowing um, and show that they were being uh, retaliated against and harassed for whistleblowing against um, poor management. And those people were uh, fired and they did not receive restitution and the superintendents were still allowed to keep their jobs. Um, so generally speaking, uh, it's not working. The This whole pledge <laughs> against uh, sexual misconduct as well as harassment whist- against whistleblowers, it's nothing's being done. Um, the 
the rules that are set in place are protecting the managers and those who are perpetra- perpetrating violence and verbal harassment. It, it's terrible. And unfortunately, when your systems in place are ineffectual, there's literally nothing you can do except sue. And God knows the amount of money somebody has to pour into litigation can sometimes put somebody off from doing anything. So it's unfortunately a difficult situation and really the major change, it has to be a major cultural change with culture change within the National Park Service, within our systems to protect the victims as opposed to protecting the park. It Definitely. Needs to, major flip. Yeah. It infuriates me. It makes me so mad. <laughs> it's and infuriating. And that's not to say that it's all bad by any stretch. And there are those who have been helped. And there are those who have received help. But, I mean, with the number of cases, it shows something is just horribly wrong. And it really is a, a cultural thing. And it's not just um, the National Park Service. This is outside of the field of um, anthropology or archaeology, but... There was a a recent federal complaint um, lodged against the University of Rochester um, that alleged that the university had protected a noted professor who was a manipulative sexual predator um, and going so far as to retaliate against the people who made complaints um, against this professor. And I mean, the, the president in trying to contain the crisis oh like we should we should just turn the page and blank slate and like that's not really how that works um the alleged professor was um florian jaeger um and so far there are 14 individuals who have come forward um to the legal team and talked to them about their issues to say nothing of the women who decided that they didn't want their at, to add their name to the the formal legal complaint, um, you know, or the women who weren't surprised, or the women who saw inspected but you know were worried about um, you know ruining their own careers, um, you know. And there's a particular article that we'll put in the show notes to talk about how you know there were rumors around the department. This was an open secret. It was. Mm-hmm you know, well-known and this guy brought in a lot of grant money. Um, so the university didn't necessarily do, um, the, they are alleging that the university didn't do anything to protect the students and that they should have, and that, you know, sexual predators should not be in positions of power, which is like not, not a crazy statement. Like sexual Mm -hmm. predators should not be in positions of power. This seems pretty Mm -hmm. basic to me. Um, but it seems to be an issue in all, all the cases that, we'll be talking about that it's it's a well-known like quotes secret i mean no one should be shocked that this is happening because it's known the harvey weinstein situation the park service situation the situation you're talking about it's known and that's what's disgusting about it's like people know what's going on it's the position of power that facilitates the predatorial behavior if these people weren't in positions of power how could, you know, would they be able to do this? Yeah. Well, and to add in to the complication, as far as from the university perspective, um, and this is in no way defending the university's actions in any of those cases, but when you have a structure for the university systems, like you have in the U.S., to where the majority of the funding is brought in um, like research funding is brought in from the professors and the researchers themselves. If you have say five professors that are bringing in, you know, most of the money for the school or like one that's bringing in most of the functioning money for the department, that person is, has power not only over their students and their department, but has a thumb to hold over the university itself. And this is where you get into the, these wonky dynamics of the universities protecting people that I'm sure they understand they shouldn't be protecting or may not want to. Um, and it's a little bit more, 
it it's still fits into this larger structural issue, I think, that is not very conducive to working on how to fix the problem because it kind of plays into this is a much larger problem than, than the harassment itself. It's the reinforcing structures of the, the power um, that individuals can inherit or can basically purchase. Um, did anyone Good read point. John Krakauer's book, Missoula? No, no, no. Okay. Well, <laughs> so he's an investigative journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, he did into was- thin air, correct? Yeah, okay. he wrote into the air. He wrote um, under a banner under the banner of heaven, oh, which was. Yes. And so his most recent book is <clears throat> named Missoula, um, and it's a case study of sexual harassment, rape, um, and discrimination on college campuses. And it centers around the football team. And mm. I was there at the time that this happened. I did my graduate studies there, um, as well as a postdoc um, at the University of Montana. So I had. Um, the unfortunate situation of being in the, in the midst of all of these things. And Missoula is not certainly, or the University of Montana was certainly not the worst. It made for an excellent case study, um, but it wasn't the first, it wasn't the biggest, it wasn't the only, um, but it points to, again, the, you know, these larger problems. And with the college taking on the issue, um, in this instance, it was a football team, um, in a series of rape covers cover up by coaches. Um, this was also facilitated by professors. Mm-hmm. Um, this was facilitated by professors asking their graduate teaching assistants, myself included, you know, um, to facilitate certain um, privileges for you know for the for people who are accused of predatorial behavior, and. You know, and it ran not only with the football's behavior, but, you know, something the book doesn't address was, you know, the departmental dynamics. But it all comes back to, you know, these issues of power, mm-hmm. um, these issues of money. If we, we wouldn't have laws and ethics rules if we weren't so poorly behaved, yeah. right, as humans. <laughs> it's, it's lovely to sit back and say, you know, I believe and I do, like, I want to believe in the good in people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That people are intrinsically good, but people are intrinsically not good, right? People behave poorly, especially when they feel as though they can get away with it. You know, and this is where we see it in our, you know, in our shared discipline is that we have the system where people can get away with it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, like the Weinstein um, situation, these aren't surprises, but they all share, you know, the similar trait of power and money mm-hmm. prioritization of economics over basic human and civil rights yeah oh that's depressing yeah <laughs> <laughs> sorry that's all right you should read the book though <laughs> it, it sounds so, really good and you know a lot of universities football programs are worth you know millions tens of millions of dollars to the university and that's i mean that's a big chunk of change to yeah um, right and how and how apt are those universities to take on departments where these power dynamics um you know and these and these predatorial behaviors are occurring when they're already losing money from these other things right they can't afford to look inward in the departments and their senior tenured professors are the ones who are bringing in grants yeah you know who are, you know, charged with taking a dozen or more students into an isolated field environment mm-hmm. for you know, three to eight weeks at a time. But I also think the more stories that we hear about this, the more things get known. Um, students who come forward and, you know, file legal action against universities um, or even just in the day of, of social media, if you Google a university and the top news story pops up, uh, you know, noted professor or university in trouble because they protected a noted professor who's, um, you know, a manipulative sexual predator, students aren't going to want to go to that university. Exactly. Uh, you can affect their bottom line if they have to pay out people who've been um, hurt in the past because they didn't do what they should have to protect them. Um, 
they will see admissions rates um, decline. You know, so I do think you can you can also fight back economically. I think so. I agree with that, but I think that it continues to put the responsibility on the people that have been victimized. Yes. Um, it's not just an economic cost of litigation, but there is a defamation of character that occurs. And if you've already been victimized and you're trying to um, step up and take this on to be torn down mm-hmm. uh, this process, I think that, you know, it's no secret whether students um, or, or junior faculty or whomever, whether anybody's coming forward saying it, it's no secret that this is happening. Mm-hmm. Right. It, people know that this is going on. They know exactly who's doing it. This is not a secret. And it, something needs to switch where the responsibility isn't, you know, put on the people that have been victimized by this. Mm-hmm. And I think some of it comes with there's a mentality of, say, people hiring, um, that if someone, and and not just the people hiring, but just upper administration. So if you have this protectionist view of how to manage your institution, whatever that may be, be it CRM firm, be it uh, state agency, federal agency, or university, if you have a view of protecting your institution by not letting it look bad, you're one less likely to hire people who have stepped forward in the past because you don't want quote unquote, the bad to get out, you know? Absolutely. So that endangers both the person who comes out, especially if they're a student or junior faculty from getting a job again later. So people are less likely in those positions are less likely to come forward if they're just trying to get in their foot in the door or are trying to get hired. Um, And you also have this mindset that, and some of this, I think, it may turn over in the next 20 years. Not that I want to wait that long, but as (laughs) these institutional heads retire and they get replaced with, you know, hopefully, you know, I'm being optimistic, I'm sure here, but I'd like to think Mm -hmm. that as this, these you know, older generations that are in the top ranks of power turn over to retire. We will hopefully be getting people in that understand things in a different way and don't look at the reputation of their institution as needing to be protected from things happening inside and putting on a nice veneer, but rather switching gears and being like, let's be the best we can. And then we don't have to worry about protecting the stuff that's happening on the inside. We have to keep the inside Mm -hmm. clean. And the more people we get who are willing to step forward will help keep people inside the institution, such as students and uh, faculty and um, lower rank um, agency employees safe, which will then turn better employees because people who mm-hmm. want to stick around or, you know, people will want to stick around. It's a good, if it's a good place to work, if they've been treated poorly, they're less likely going to want to stay there. And unless they can't get a job anywhere else, you know, they're not going to stick around. So you end up lowering the quality of employees and, faculty, I would think, if you don't flush out that sort of inner rot, one might say. Uh, One thing that is very positive about people starting to do like the Me Too situation, um, the surveys that are coming out, and then this idea, Kirsten, what you're saying about um, people don't want to stay where there is that institutional rot. Um, Is that word of mouth, social media has been very positive and at least showing what sexual harassment can be more than just like everyone thinks, oh, it's assault or um, a direct verbal thing. But there's also the microaggressions, the um, the jokes, uh, things that we may not have otherwise considered to be overt sexual harassment. But with the Me Too's, the, um, the Me Too hashtag and um, just this idea that it's coming out more and more. And then the idea of word of mouth, more people will be able to recognize like, oh yeah, that was wrong. They shouldn't have done that. Or that joke is inappropriate. Don't say that to me. That's the positive side of this is that I think more and more people are able to recognize what 
sexual harassment can be, and then there may not be a hundred different ways to go out against it, but at least they may be able to speak up for themselves right at that moment and say, don't do that. That's wrong. Or um, create a, I don't know the right way to say it, um, uh, a culture that doesn't approve of that from the get-go. And then maybe that institutional rot, those types of things, at least word of mouth or those, the students can say, hey, you don't want to take that class with so-and-so because they said a weird thing to me and it was an inappropriate joke or don't go to that school because I know from somebody else's experience online, they said X, Y, and Z. Right. Um, Now I do want to end this 20 minute section, which we um, are approaching the end of with a positive note Um, on the, the last episode we did on sexual harassment. We talked about the allegations against paleoanthropologist Brian Richmond who uh, at the time was working at the American Museum of Natural History, um, and he had allegedly allegedly sexually assaulted a research assistant, harassed a bunch of trainees in the schools, um, and the museum, you know, investigated him, I guess. It didn't seem um, like it was maybe particularly thorough, and he was allowed to stay on. Um, And as of December of 2016, so almost a year ago, he um, had resigned his position at the the museum, and it's unclear whether he resigned other pressure under pressure. Although there had been repeated investigations, including an external investigation, there may have you know been concerns about. Um, this is well known that um, you know he engages in this type of behavior and it's very public knowledge now. Um, and if something else were to happen, we could be held liable and sued. Um, this is of course all hearsay. No one at the museum has said that. Um, but I, for one, mm-hmm. I'm really, really happy to see that this became a large enough thing that he is no longer at that museum. Um, although he was allowed to resign and therefore take like a year severance. Um, so could have been better, but <laughs> at least it's something, right? Take take the mini win when you can get it. <laughs> a little bit of silver lining, right? Skosh. So, so on that bit of silver lining, um, we're gonna go to break, and when we come back, we're gonna talk a little bit about recognizing um, good and bad situations and what you can do to um, help stop the sexual harassment um, that happens in the fields of archaeology. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On this episode, we have been discussing sexual harassment issues in archaeology. Moving forward into this, our third section, we're going to talk a little bit about recognizing some red flags, um, both in individuals and in, in programs or field schools, and what we can do to try and make this situation better. Um, so uh, does anyone want to jump in with something or I can start? Go ahead. I'll start. Yeah. <laughs> it's all you. Do it. <laughs> um, so there was a, a recent report that came out that highlighted some of the issues facing um, recognizing situations where sexual assault um, and harassment might be more likely to occur, as well as taken less seriously, not having any recourse. And, you know, one of the big things was whatever school you're planning on going to, um, fieldwork experience, there should be something up front that has clear boundaries, like clear clear rules of conduct 
um, and a clear method of enforcing them. Um, and, you know, dangerous situations are situations that, you know, don't even address that this is a problem and there isn't a person you can go talk to if there's a problem, um, you know, regardless of what the, the problem is, but almost like having a designated like HR person, even if they are, you know, also an archaeologist, but having someone like that, the simple act of identifying them makes mm. people safer. That's a really good idea. Just having somebody in place that you can go to, even if it's minor accumulative things that you can be like, yeah, so-and-so saying a strange thing and I don't like it. I mean, to yeah. overt. I think that's great. That would be wonderful to have in place. Yeah. And, and it's such a basic thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in point of fact, there was um, a recent report in trying to, to come up on the um, so a new study it was reported in the Journal of American Anthropologist mm -hmm. um, found that field site directors who didn't have clear rules um, around conduct and someone to talk to if you know there was a breach in conduct were more likely to tolerate, ignore, engage, and encourage physical or sexual harassment. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so having someone who has, you know, here are the ground rules, you know, as someone who is aware that there's an issue and um, it, it sends a very, very strong message. We know this is an issue. Well, we're not going to tolerate it. I'm a person who knows about it. I'm a person who cares about it. And, um, you know, you, you might be less inclined to think that you could sneak something by or, um, yeah. so that's, I would like, you know, a relatively minor thing that could be easily done. Yes. I would, I would like to also add that making sure that said policy is discussed at the beginning of said, you know, uh, whether it's field school or, at the beginning of, say, the first meeting when you go out into the field for a project um, and having everyone have a copy, like when they sign the pa paperwork for hire, when they sign up for the field school and, say, at the field school, having like a copy of them for people because people aren't going to have their computers necessarily available or internet or mm -hmm. all of the above and probably I'm 99% sure did not print out the copy of the rules of conduct <laughs> to bring with them. So having a reference to be like, oh, there was someone or a phone number or something that I can get a hold of and making sure that it's not just like, so I'm going to refer to the university policy. And I see this at universities where they're like, we have, here's a link to the university code of conduct. Please read it. That's mm -hmm. not... <laughs> People don't, aren't going to read that. It's like the, you know, when you go to download something and you have the terms and conditions, I don't believe mm -hmm. anyone that actually says that they read the entire thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I made a point of um, starting a new policy where not just for, um, you know, and of course I work in academia, so we do uh, field archaeology field schools, and they're often at remote sites where there's no phone access, there's no laptops, there's not a system of support. Yeah. And we have our, I have a Title IX officer come in and meet with everybody, not just employees, but also students. Oh, wow. Um, mm -hmm. And give out, a, you know, her card with her phone number. And I've started providing um, details of an evacuation plan. Oh. Because we're in a remote site, sometimes people feel like they are stuck. Yeah. You know, and they're mm -hmm. just deal with this and you know and it's just three more weeks I'm just going to get through um so I provide all of the students as well as the administration at the college on you know if something were to go wrong whether somebody is physically injured um whether somebody feels victimized or uncomfortable or you or yeah. you know if they're accused of you know of being a perpetrator of these things this is my evacuation plan mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. and there's and there's no questions like we're not going to negotiate it in the yeah. field yeah yeah that's really great there is is your way out and go ahead and go at any time. Yeah. Um, a really good idea. Yeah. And I found, I mean, I feel like um, 
we had really, I feel like we had really good luck with it. I've been in field experiences where, you know, I was co-director of them, um, but not overall director where I didn't have the, I didn't have the power to enforce that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, oftentimes we learn from, you know, we, we, we learn from watching these bad situations arise. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Out of it, unfortunately. Um, But I found that that was really helpful. And for students, you know, or people that are looking, you know, for employment at a, at a CRM firm as a tech or anything else, ask what those policies are, right? Before you find yourself in a situation where you need to find those resources to report or put yourself in a safe place, you know, asking at that interview process, Mm -hmm. you know, or in visiting a department or an institution, you know, what are your policies? What are the, what, what support systems do you have in place? Yeah. Out of curiosity, beyond uh, support systems or like places to call, uh, for your field school, Kristen, what you're talking about, were repercussions discussed? Because that's one thing I honestly haven't really seen much um, from what I remember going to my field school. It's like there's all the, the list, like, don't do these things. But are re- right. repercussions ever talked about? Like, if you do this, this is what will happen. Yeah, I mean, what I do is immediately eject people. You know, mm-hmm. if there's a question, if anybody's safety is at risk, um, then you're asked to leave immediately. And, that's and I known keep ahead I of time that that's what would happen. Yeah, and I have a syllabus. We meet ahead of time. I mean, we talk about just I include you know sexual harassment as part of uh, human rights, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. civil rights discussions, which I think it should be. You know, and not so isolated into its own situation. I mean, any yeah, you know, any marginalization any hate, any victimizing is, you know, whether it's in your language, whether it's racial, mm-hmm. whether, you know, whatever it's based on, it's inappropriate um, and, and unacceptable, especially when oftentimes you're in remote places where you rely on each other for everything. Yeah. yeah. So we talk about it in advance. I make it very clear what I put up with, what I don't. If people have concerns, I encourage them to unenroll from the course. Hmm. Uh, you know, or go speak to their their advisor or whomever it is if they're feeling like this is a challenge. I also keep dry camps, um, so there's no drugs, no alcohol allowed in the field. Yeah, that's um, that's another. That's a big one. That's yeah, another one. And you know, and the repercussions are that if you have these, and I find out, right, and somebody's going to report. Um, <laughs> we we don't talk about it. You don't get a warning. There's no room for warning. Yeah. Um, you just are asked to leave, you lose, you know, if you're taking the course for credit, you lose credit. If you're there as a paid um, assistant or whatnot, you're no longer paid. You get a free trip home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is something um, but that I've seen at other field schools, too, that I've been involved with, where it's kind of like, you know, harassment or just completely inappropriate behavior. Like, it's, you know, any apparent obvious problem or non-obvious problem with alcohol or anything else comes up like you're you go home (laughs) yeah and I've worked in I mean I've spent I spent all of my training working in camps where they were dry camps Mm. but there was no enforcement it was said there's no drinking there's no this but even in the most obvious circumstances yeah where there were you know the priority was well we just have, you know, we just have a couple of weeks left. Let's just finish up and we'll deal with it later, which really meant that nobody dealt with anything. Yeah. And as soon as people that are pushing those boundaries realize they can get a foothold and that there's no repercussions, it just gets worse. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Right. And I see that largely in CRM field work, that yeah. that foothold's there. And it's like, oh, we talked to so-and-so. They won't do that again. It's like, no, they need something stronger, a stronger repercussion than just a talking to. Yeah. And I mean, my my policies are not college policies. Mm -hmm. I have, you know, I've received full support from the college in, um, you know, in putting student safety, right. And community safety Mm -hmm. as a priority. But I'm sure they're not standard and I can be a little bit abrupt and unsympathetic. But if you're worried about someone's safety. I'm not worried about it. I don't really care. (laughs) Safety is Right. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen too much harm done. Mm. Right. Um, well, more policies um, like that would benefit, I think, everyone. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and obviously when you talk about sexual harassment, you have all of the common victim blaming um, questions, yeah. one of which is, you know, where are you drinking? Yeah. But um, alcohol is also strongly correlated um, for people who are not like perpetual perpetrators. Um, mm-hmm. But alcohol is, is strongly correlated with it, you know, reduces your inhibitions. And they might think when they were sober, they might be like, oh, yeah, this is wrong. And when they're drunk, they may be like, ah, but is it really? Well, and has anybody here not heard somebody, at least one person say what happens in the field stays in the field? Oh, yeah, yeah that's the time. And it's it's frightening. And-, and so you have that mentality and this like um, situated anonymity and freedom to do whatever you want um, without the, you know, without any social repercussions. And then you add alcohol to that mix. Yeah. Um, and, you know. We behave, we, we make decisions, many of us that we often regret, and some people make decisions that, you know, just are a continuation of maybe things that they have already been doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so earlier we were talking about bringing up red flags. Um, yeah. One of the things that I wanted to bring up actually fits into this with the alcohol is... Um, and this is kind of a red flag. This is kind of one of those like situations to avoid and kind of, if you see this occur, like keep an eye out for the, you know, maybe what happened. But, um, a lot of the times say in CRM firms, you have, everyone goes out for a drink or a beer or a meal afterwards or at the end of a project, you know, if you have a small crew, make sure there's a buddy system sort of thing. And this isn't like, you know, necessarily blame the victim, but trying to keep an eye out for each other and seeing kind of, um, I like to think of it as the, um, I don't know how to describe what I'm trying to explain, but rather than like be wary and watch yourself sort of idea, what I'm trying to say is something along the lines of like, keep an eye out for things that may have been of suspect to you. Um, and don't be afraid to say something or call it out. Um, especially mm-hmm. if, cause a lot of the times when you are the, the victim, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the victim is less likely to come forward in these small fields where your job may be at risk, your rehire, especially if the perpetrator is someone who is either a senior in the field has been around and knows you know, the, the community, um, and you're first in, or if you're a student, um, if they're a supervisor, um, blackballing or blacklisting, um, people even texts, uh, in texts against texts for being, you know, um, uncooperative or a liar or fill in the blank, who knows what. Um, so, keeping an eye out to see if anything seems suspicious and kind of looking and checking on friends sort of thing. Um, because if a friend mm-hmm. is willing to step forward against somebody, keeping the victim possibly anonymous or at least on the down low, I think that is more likely in our community to be more effective um, than in trying to help each other out and kind of, you know, be like, you know, drink less, that would be good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and I think one of the is that we're often in isolated places in a small group where those interpersonal, ba- right, those professional boundaries can become blurred because you do become yes. each other's friends mm-hmm. or family. Yeah. And I think that's one of the complicated aspects of dealing with this in archaeology or in any field science. Mm-hmm. For sure. Right. But I think, I think it is important um, Kirsten, as you mentioned, uh, kind of a, if you, if you see something, say something, um, mm-hmm. because people who are perpetrating these sorts of, uh, who are engaging this sort of behavior and um, harassment and assault, it's it's about a power dynamic, and it's about the fact that they see someone else as being less powerful and they can take an advantage of it. So even mm-hmm. if that person 
like says something, they already kind of view that person as a, like a lesser power level. So they might not take it as seriously. But if you are their friend or, you know, their survey buddy or their supervisor or, you know, whatever your position is. Um, and unfortunately, like, this is particularly um, true for guys, but like, say something, right? Say, mm-hmm. oh, like, you shouldn't be talking to people like that. It's not appropriate. Like, that's not funny. Or, you know, or yeah. if, if somebody says something and you're like, no, 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 no. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, you get what I mean. Like, look at them flat in the face and be like, no, I don't. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's not just about I saw someone touching someone who didn't want to be touched. It's those microaggressions that you get away with the microaggressions and realize that nobody's paying attention to that and think maybe you can escalate. And if mm-hmm. you can keep it from escalating by making it very clear that even these microaggressions are not going to be um, stood for and that they're going to be noticed by other people in the crew beyond the individuals who are um, being victimized. You know, that is that is something that anyone can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the whole argument that, oh, that's not what they meant. Oh, they're really, they're a good guy or they, yeah. they're just kidding around. That's excusing microaggressions. That's excusing poor behavior that is unacceptable and should be stopped from the get-go. If they're such a good person, they shouldn't be saying those things. If they're making other people uncomfortable, making yourself uncomfortable, then they shouldn't be allowed to speak that way or make anybody else feel uncomfortable. It's not right. Definitely. Now, ladies, we are approaching the end of our um, podcast. It's usually the part where we say, if anyone has any final thoughts, (laughs) now is the time the time to say them or, you know, you can remember them and bring them up on our next um, episode. (laughs) (laughs) Mine's very short. It's don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to speak out. I know it seems very scary, but speak out. And there are many, many people who will support you. And the more we speak out, the more visual this situation becomes. Hopefully we can put a stop to it before it starts in the field. That's me. <laughs> Just try not to be afraid. Yeah. Um, Kristen or Kristen? Um, you know, I'm hoping that these conversations continue and that, you know, again, rather than relying on victims for stepping up and being the bringers of change um, for, you know, for the people mm-hmm. in power, right, that are creating these structures or policies, you know, that have the ability to offset this, that they step up and rather, rather than waiting for more victims to come forward, True. Um, that we find our own responsibility in this mm-hmm. and start, on, you know, including, including the SAS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would like to definitely reinforce what Kristen just said um, with, I'd like to just make a call out for the whole community to come together and make this happen because I mean, believe it or not, I mean, it's a small field and we mm-hmm. are responsible for each other and ourselves, of course. Um, but I really think that we need to get our shit together and <laughs> and really kind of It's true, get, it's so um, true. <laughs> get a handle on our people um and on each other and ourselves and be able to create systems of um what's the word support no um radical change yes radical change (laughs) but i'm thinking more accountability there we go systems for Ah, accountability because in the end that's what it really i think unfortunately comes down to because it has been proven that we can't just necessarily trust on the goodness that we hope everyone has in them to behave properly and not be an asshole um because you know (laughs) don't be a dick is kind of a good motto for life i think um (laughs) yeah but yeah we have to we have to just kind of get our hands dirty and create these systems of accountability somehow and even 
you know, I know everyone's afraid of rocking the boat or stepping on toes. We have to do something. We can't just be like, well, you know, that's just the way it is. That's a, a poor excuse. Yeah. No. Um, Got to so take I, care of one another, and that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would add to that because it bears repeating in the culture that we live in that victim blaming. Um, it's never the victim's fault. Um, I think that's something that can probably not be said often enough. Um, you know, and that we deserve better and we should do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can. I know we can. There and we can do better. Anyone. Yes, and we can do better. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> oh, even though we're a small platform, please feel free to email us if you feel like you you're in the field um and situations have been happening uh we can email you resources and we'll yeah we're there are resources we're here. out there that can help you we are here we're we support you um our email is women in archaeology at gmail.com um we're here to help and i think on that note we are unfortunately out of time but um despite the the heavy nature of today's topic i know not all of our topics are as heavy as this um thank you so much for joining me today it's always wonderful to have these conversations Um, and i always feel like i learned something so until next time bye bye Bye. thanks for listening to the women in archaeology podcast on the archaeology podcast network please like share rate and subscribe to the show wherever you found it if you have questions, leave them in the show notes page at www.archpodnet.com slash WIA or email them to women in archaeology podcast at gmail.com. The music is Retro Future by Kevin McLeod and is royalty free music. To support the network and become a member, go to www.archpodnet.com slash members. This show is produced at the Reno Collective in Reno, Nevada. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.